Hello, I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. All right, so Nahal, I have been lucky enough for the last few years to live with a friend of mine who is a sommelier at a very fancy three Michelin star restaurant. It's been amazing. I've gotten to eat some incredible meals with her and because of her. So Nahal, I'd like to ask you, what do you think of or imagine when I say the phrase fine dining? First of all, I was not strategic enough to move in with somebody who works at a high-end restaurant, (laughs) but noted. When I think of fine dining, what I think about is soft music, heavy cutlery, uniforms, small portions, artfully arranged on a plate. Um, I think about a particular experience that is not necessarily associated with how delicious the food is. I mean, sure, Mm. you can have great food at a fine dining establishment, but it's more about the ambiance and experience. Conversely, you can also have great food from a food truck that you eat on the side of the road with your hands. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily equate fine dining with quote-unquote good food. You're absolutely right, Hall. You could have a delicious street taco from a vendor off the side of the road. You could also have a kind of mediocre meal that cost you a hundred bucks. So in this episode, I wanted to really interrogate that idea of who defines good food. What is good food? And to start, I felt like we had to go back to the beginnings of the restaurant to learn about the history of fine dining in particular and Just to be clear, this episode is mostly focused on the United States and Europe. So with that, let's get into it. My name is Jillian Gualtieri, and I am a term assistant professor at Barnard College at Columbia University. And I am a sociologist who primarily studies racial and gender inequality in creative industries. So kind of pre-19th century, the only time that you would dine outside of your home was either when you were traveling or when you were visiting friends. And people who had the kind of expendable income and cultural capital to travel were rich people. So rich people often employed folks to cook for them. And they would be cooking these kind of elaborate meals because it's someone's entire occupation to cook, right? You literally have all day to make dinner as opposed to someone who's running a nuclear family and has lots of other responsibilities. The French Revolution tore the old system of dining to the ground. A lot of aristocrats find themselves no longer aristocrats, which means that the people who they employed find themselves no longer employed. But they had these rich culinary skills. So in France, at least, many of these people open restaurants or public dining spaces in order to share their culinary prowess with a public. The word restaurant actually loosely translates to to restore, and it originally referred to the broths that were served in taverns along people's travel routes, right? So you would have a restaurant, you would eat whatever the innkeeper's wife made. Around the same time, the Industrial Revolution was leading to a mass migration of people from self-sustaining homes out in the countryside to the cities with much more densely populated and cramped living situations. They're sharing rooms. They don't have access to cooking facilities. So you have more dining outside of the home in these urban Mm -hmm. centers. At the turn of the 20th century, you have George Auguste Escoffier, who, with his friend Ritz, they open the Ritz-Carlton and they open a restaurant there that has a very established Escoffier-developed system of organization called the Brigade de Cuisine, which it's the formal organization of the kitchen that is still used in a lot of these restaurants today. Mm -hmm. 
So it's at the Ritz that George Auguste Escoffier develops the mother sauces, what we consider to be kind of like classical French cuisine. There are codified, established rules that he publishes in Le Guide Culinaire in 1903. And the Ritz becomes this training ground for European cooks and chefs, where you train cooks in this formal, institutionalized pattern of French cooking, and you then send them out to these glamorous hotels all over Europe to cook for the European and American elites who are on the kind of 20th century version of the Grand Tour. You have this literal development of elite taste through the mm. kinds of serving that happens in those restaurants, right? So they're all being taught the same sauce. They're following similar techniques. This is what you come to expect. You can only access this if you are elite and you're traveling in these hotels. This codified type of French dining was packaged up and served to the world at the 1939 New York World's Fair, where Le Restaurant du Pavillon opened as part of the France exhibit. And so it's like this institution of this is what the French cooking is. It becomes accessible to New Yorkers, not just New Yorkers who can travel to these fancy restaurants. To this day, classical French cooking, and in particular the Escoffier system, are regarded as the foundations of Western culinary technique. So if we were to go to the Culinary Institute of America and register right now, we would be taught the French terms for various forms of cutting mm -hmm. vegetables. So this really remains a prominent mechanism of determining good taste. As French cuisine and restaurant culture developed and matured and spread around the world, I got to imagine the food critic was not far behind in becoming a thing. So can you explain where these kind of tastemakers, the, whether it's the Michelin Guide or the New York Times restaurant reviewers or the institutional legacy media, where does that first crop up? And how does it relate to this idea of European white fancy rich food being, quote unquote, the good food? Michelin is the tire company and they have a really fun story. You have this new invention, the automobile. Automobiles need tires. In order to sell tires, you need people to think that they need automobiles. But we've lived this whole kind of life where we have these self-sustaining villages or neighborhoods. Why would I need to travel? So in order to inspire travel, the Michelin brothers created the Michelin Guide where they would rank hotels and restaurants, essentially creating culinary tourism in this free guide that they would distribute through auto shops in an effort mm. to kind of get people to think that, oh, I could travel. In order to travel, I need a car. That car needs tires. They started in France and they slowly expanded the guide across the European continent. They didn't come to the United States until 2005. And that was also around the same time that Michelin expanded to Asia. And they rank restaurants on a one to three star scale that's still grounded in that kind of culinary tourism driving tradition. So one star is worth a stop, two stars is worth a detour, three stars is worth a special journey. And that still is the kind of formal established criteria by which restaurants are ranked. For Jillian's dissertation, she spoke with 120 Michelin-recognized chefs and read and analyzed 1,380 Michelin Guide reviews of restaurants in New York City and San Francisco. When she spoke to the chefs, it became clear that the Michelin Guide continues to be a leading tastemaker in food. 
I interviewed 120 chefs, but when I would ask them which form of consecration matters the most to you, right? Like, is it diners? Is it Yelp reviews? Is it local reviewers? There are two critical tastemakers that they would identify. It was really important to them to impress their peers and Michelin. And part of why they put so much faith in Michelin is it's been around for hundreds of years, but also the Michelin inspection process, it's anonymous. So there's this idea with Michelin that you have to be consistent and anyone could be a Michelin inspector. And so if you get that marker from Michelin, it means that on a day-to-day basis, you really are achieving excellence. And so it really means a lot to those chefs who get it. So much so, I mean, the stakes are really high. There are several chefs throughout history who have killed themselves when they've lost a star. Hmm. This really has so much meaning in this context and in this occupation. So at this point, Jillian started digging into the Michelin Guide with the hopes of understanding what criteria they use to judge a restaurant and ultimately deem it good. I was like, wait, what are these standards, right? One star worth a stop. How do you decide something is worth a stop? I got really interested in the evaluative processes. And so I started tracking the language that the reviews were using to say this restaurant is great, this restaurant is fine, this restaurant is good for this kind of diner. And I noticed that there were three primary themes of evaluation. So technique, creativity, and authenticity. But they were being used differently. So then I kind of systematically tracked, okay, which restaurants are being called technically excellent and which are creative? And I realized that there was a correlation between the implied or explicit whiteness of the category of cuisine being cooked and the use of technique and creative language to celebrate those restaurants. But the restaurants that were cooking what would be colloquially termed ethnic restaurants, so restaurants that are serving food associated with what Krishnendu Ray calls a subaltern immigrant producer or non-whiteness, were primarily being held to standards of authenticity. And so I observed this in the Michelin Guide, and I had the question, okay, so do these tastemakers really matter? How do they get so powerful? Who Mm -hmm. actually sits down and reads the Michelin Guide cover to cover? I hope nobody else. (laughs) Um, And so I then set out to interview chefs. And unprompted, right, I I didn't say, so what does technique mean to you? I just asked them questions about their creative process, about their careers, about how they thought about their work. And these same logics of technique, creativity, and authenticity emerged in the same patterns that I observed in the Michelin Hmm. Guide. So as Jillian was exploring, the type of food a restaurant or a chef is creating really determines which of those ideas, technique, creativity, and authenticity, matters most. In particular, for immigrant food or non-white food, authenticity was key. But authenticity is a vague concept, and immigrant culture, and of course the food associated with it, is complex and nuanced. The researcher that Jillian mentioned just now, Krishnendu Ray, studies immigrant food and also the complicated relationship between culture and perceptions of immigrant food. So if we're trying to understand what immigrant food is, there's no better person to speak to. That word ethnic is a complicated and an interesting term. I'm Krishnandu Ray. I'm a professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at NYU. And my work has historically been on immigrant foodways, what changes, what doesn't, how does it matter to people, and how it transforms American tastes. 
When you say migrant food, ethnic food, non-native food, there's a lot of different words here. Give us a basic definition just so we can kind of get on the same page here. The term ethnic emerges in American public discussion, mostly in the late 1950s into the early 1960s. It's a way most journalists and commentators are marking, in this case, food that is not clearly white, nor is it clearly black. Okay, so it's this other category and often associated with the foreign born, which is the census category, or immigrant in everyday parlance. Krishnandu got interested in the history of ethnic food when he noticed that most workers in the restaurant industry were immigrants or foreign-born. My first question was, is this a recent pattern? Is this a long-term pattern? And it turned out we have census data from the 1850 census onwards for birthplace and occupation. And if we correlate the two, you see massive overrepresentation of foreign-born in professions like butchering, baking, saloon keeper, restaurant keeper. And of course, the difference is initially from the 1850s onwards is mostly German and Irish. And then from about 1880s to 1924, you have mostly Italian, Eastern European Jews, That's where we get the delis, the Italian restaurants, and also Chinese uh, at that point of time, especially in places like New York City. Remember, the Chinese migrants come to New York City often from the West Coast, so it takes a little longer. They are the 49ers on the West Coast. And post-1965, mostly Latinx and Asian. So you see a pattern where immigrants are central to feeding Americans from almost the very first moment we have census data. This broad and imprecise category of quote-unquote ethnic food first emerged in the 1960s and really started to go out of fashion in 2010. But Krishnendu found that food writers and tastemakers have been discussing the idea of immigrant or foreign food long before the term ethnic food arose. So in the New York Times, you will see a lot of discussion on German food as exotic food. Hmm. You will have a lot of discussion about Italian food. And you can see an exoticism and also a degree of prejudice for new immigrant foods. And that changes over time depending on which cohort is in in the largest number in the U.S. and which cohort is slowly moving up in terms of upward mobility and the assessment of it. Foreign food or immigrant food or ethnic food, these are, I'm using them as synonyms right now. So if you use them as synonyms, what you see is there's a kind of an early popularity of these foods. A lot of people are beginning to eat first inside the community, And then slowly it spreads outward. Other people are eating, journalists are eating and writing about it, but it does not acquire prestige. So in some ways, it first acquires popularity and it takes time to acquire prestige. And that is related to a number of other dynamics. This distinction between what types of food are considered popular and what types of food are considered prestigious is central to Krishnendu's research. Today in the United States, there are about, say, 650,000 eating and drinking establishments. About 100,000 of them approximately are Italian. Okay, That's the largest number. 
And then you have Chinese, about 50,000, Mexican, about 50,000. These are the three most popular cuisines in the United States. And they have been so over the last, I would say, about 40 years. But amongst them, it would be very difficult for a Chinese restaurant, for instance, to demand a price like a French restaurant or even an Italian restaurant. Mm. So that's, if price is a surrogate for prestige, what my data shows is that you have popularity on one side, like today, for instance, Mexican food is very popular. Okay, but upscale Mexican restaurants are becoming visible, but they are not as common as, say, upscale French restaurants or upscale Italian restaurants mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or upscale new American restaurants. So for that, you have to look at things like price, things like how they are covered in, say, the New York Times restaurant review. Until relatively recently, it was very difficult to find a review of an upscale restaurant that was not French or not New American or not what used to be called Continental. Krishnandu was lucky to be able to turn to another type of restaurant review, the Zagat survey, to get a lot of incredible data for his work. Zagat first emerged in 1979 when a New York couple, Tim and Nina Zagat, asked their friends to rate and review the city's restaurants. They published a small booklet that was called the Zagat Survey. Over time, the survey grew to include over 70 cities and tens of thousands of reviewers. Krishnandu turned to this massive data set that Zagat has collected over the years to understand what sorts of food have been considered popular over time and what sorts of food have been considered prestigious. He published his findings in his 2016 book, The Ethnic Restaurateur. What is popular? So I calculate that by total number of restaurants in Zagat's, which are about, uh, to give you an example, in New York City, there are about 24,000 restaurants, out of which Zagat's often covered about maybe 2,000 restaurants, maybe sometimes 1,000 restaurants. And to give you a sense, Michelin covers about 500 restaurants. And I was interested in prestige. And Zagat's, unlike any others, had a very interesting data point. They would ask each of their reviewers to give a price for a meal for one person with a glass of wine and tips. And so this they're collecting from about 1984, and they collect it until 2016. So what I did in the ethnic restauranter was looked at this data for each category and say, okay, let Mm. me find the average and the median price for Italian restaurants covered in Zagat's from 1986 to 2016. Okay, let me do the same with the French. Let me do the same with Japanese, etc. And then I ranked them. What was ranked like the most expensive? And you can see at the top of my data, you would see French, predictably. Then American, especially if it was going to be called New American. That became a way of upgrading, upscaling American cuisine. And this is happening at this time, I would say, mid-80s to 2016. And then Japanese shows up, you know. Uh, Japanese climbs very fast into the 2000s and especially 2010. And then you see Italian up there. Spanish is beginning to show. And you see the fastest climbing were Greek and Korean already for this data point from 1986 uh, to 2016. So that's one data set I looked at to look at popularity and prestige. Remember, I'm using price 
median and average price as a surrogate for prestige. If that is strongly correlated, then it works. So as the idea of what kind of foods are prestigious has changed, what is cheap and popular has also evolved. Pizza, for instance, has been losing ground to tacos. Krishnendu notes that, as with other elements of culture, popular food can, of course, become prestigious. But first, it needs to become widely available outside of its community of origin. What is absolutely interesting is that transformation is coming in through what is popular. So the popular is disrupting the prestigious. And by the way, that has always been a pattern in American attire. Think about blue jeans, t-shirts, you know, uh, think about American music. What is popular always runs up against a bit of what is prestigious. And in some ways, what is popular is pulled into this world of prestige and money-making and celebrity. And that's happening with Instagram, with TikTok, with some of the other crowdsource like Yelp, is there's an increasing kind of a discussion of what is popular. And, And I think the last element of it, there's a big professional class and middle class, American middle class, that is not white. I think there's a rethinking in Western urban cultures about what is important to culture. And there's a democratization of culture in general, and then a specific transformation of what used to be considered poor people's culture is becoming in some ways much more current in professional classes and discussions about cultural capital and social capital. What Krishnanda is describing to me parallels the immigrant integration experience, where with each successive generation, the longer a community has been somewhere, their culture, including their food, becomes more established too. Yeah, I think that's a great point. In addition to the demographics of immigration driving social perceptions of the food, so too does this integration. So we're looking at how changing immigrant demographics over time have affected or shaped food culture. But where are we at right now? Well, that is exactly what Jillian was trying to answer. So you'll remember that Jillian interviewed over 120 Michelin-recognized chefs in New York and San Francisco, and she found three kind of themes of judgment that emerged from her studies. Those were technique, innovation, and authenticity. So when she did this study, she found that French and New American food, both very traditionally white categories, tended to be associated with technique and creativity. But when it came to ethnic food, chefs were expected to meet a very different standard. Authenticity and expectations of authenticity formed outside of the context of fine dining. So either in relation to inexpensive Americanized takeout or what I call co-ethnic home cooking, it tastes like mom's, that these are the two pillars by which people understand authenticity for ethnic food. And that ultimately leads to the constraint of chefs cooking those foods and the price devaluation and prestige devaluation of those foods in restaurants compared to their peers cooking either classic categories of cuisine like French, Italian, or those ambiguous, what I call flexible categories of contemporary Californian American. So to be authentic, you sacrifice, in air quotes, mm-hmm. technique and creativity. And the authenticity comes from 
immigrant food. Right. And this doesn't mean that French restaurants aren't also held to standards of authenticity, but those standards are actually standardized. They're established in the formal techniques, right? Sure. The le guide culinaire. But one chef who I interviewed calls this the mama problem, where he says, everybody has a mom. I'm not going to cook exactly how your mom's food is. But if I don't match your mom's food at my restaurant, then I'm inauthentic. And the Hmm. same is not true of a French restaurant, right? Oh, if this doesn't taste like the other French food I've had, it doesn't mean it's inauthentic. There's a kind of trust and expertise that the chef is granted at Hmm. a French restaurant or at an American restaurant where we don't know what that category is, that the chef at a Mexican or a Thai or an Indian restaurant is not granted. So what does that mean for these restaurants, for these chefs? They're, I mean, I think they're angry. So I think there's a couple things that happen there. Some just embrace it and say, this is my food. And I'm not trying to do what the three Michelin-starred French restaurant is trying to do, right? I just want to have my restaurant and do what I want to do. Many of them are really frustrated with diners and Yelp. A lot of them also talk about the ways in which they have to accommodate these expectations. So many of the chefs at American restaurants, for instance, when I would say, what's your style? They would come up with some sort of unique, oh, I do seasonal ingredient focused food that's authentic to my emotions that day. But a chef at a Mexican restaurant said to me, uh, you know, I have to have guacamole and a margarita on the menu because when people come to a Mexican restaurant, They want guacamole and a margarita. And if I don't have that, I'm leaving money on the table. The same chef went on this grand trip all over Mexico to develop new dishes, came back, put a dish that involved insects on the menu that was inspired by his travels, what he had just eaten in Mexico. Yeah. It didn't sell, right? So they swap out the guacamole for the ants. It doesn't sell because it's not what people expect out of a restaurant. So that's something that's creative. It's researched. Another chef at a Chinese restaurant talked about, I source the same, uh, I think it was pea shoots as Chez Panisse. Chez Panisse can serve you, you know, an 18 leaf uh, serving. I have to serve you three pounds and I have to charge you $10 for it because I'm not being compared to Chez Panisse. I'm being compared to the Chinese takeout spot down the block. Got it. Got it. So- It puts constraints on what these non-white cuisine chefs can serve. And then also price. And I got to imagine the guides as well. The number one category that is celebrated by the guides is the great unknown category, contemporary. So the Mm -hmm. vast majority of restaurants that have stars are flexibly categorized. Mediterranean, seafood, steakhouse, contemporary, Californian, American. If there is a starred restaurant that's serving Mexican cuisine... There's only one or two, but there might be eight French restaurants. In a given city, you're saying? In a given city, right. But you could also have a chef at a Californian restaurant who's cooking with the same ingredients, but not labeling it or categorizing it Hmm. using the ethnic category. And they're lauded for their creative mixing of flavors. They're not penalized for their inauthenticity. So interesting. Right. So I spoke with these two chefs. They're Chinese American. They run a Californian restaurant. And they said, oh, we have this dish and it's basically mushu duck, but we don't call it mushu duck because to do so would cheapen the dish. So they call it duck with cabbage, (laughs) but it's mushu duck. From the consumer perspective, what is the effect of these systems and these kind of discriminatory 
biases or whatever you want to call them? Is it that I'm not getting as many creative non-white options? Is it that I'm paying less and therefore the chefs are struggling? Like, what does it mean for the everyday people that are out there listening and want to eat some good food? Yeah, if you only eat restaurants that have Michelin recognition, you probably will have some great meals, you probably will have some not great meals, it's not necessarily a stamp of universal quality. But you certainly will eat, you won't eat diversely. Let's say that. So if Hmm. you only eat at the restaurants that are appearing on TikTok, or that are kind of these markers of elite status, Elite status in the United States is correlated with a lot of things, namely whiteness, wealth, and masculinity. Many other vectors as well, but those are the three that I can confidently (laughs) articulate. And so I think that if you're staying within a kind of elite context of Mm -hmm. recognized, celebrated restaurants, it's not that those restaurants aren't delicious, but you're going to get a very particular kind of homogenous taste profile, much like if you only ate at the Ritz in the early 20th century. And there's nothing wrong with liking what everybody else likes. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. we have to understand that the ways in which we develop taste isn't just organic. It's not just particular to us. It's taste is a fundamentally social phenomenon. And so what we are exposed to, what we find to be desirable, what we want to emulate is socially structured. It's not just organically developing from us. And so if we want to challenge that, it requires a different kind of work and a different kind of expanding beyond our existing networks. Then if you approach kind of your consumption of social media critically, that's great. The other thing that's wonderful about social media is while it is not the great democratizing force that it often is pitched as, it's an easier mechanism to identify the audience for everything. So Mm. if you want to only know about the pierogies served in the church basement on Saturdays from 1 to 5 p.m. You can find that creator. But if we're just looking at kind of what the average consumer is going to get, yeah, you're probably going to get a pretty homogenous picture. So Nahal, I was kind of surprised when Jillian said that she didn't really find social media and food media as a way of expanding one's horizons on the food landscape. I would have assumed that social media loves to be about the hidden gems and finding that good street taco cart or whatever, or maybe that's just my own thing. But I I was surprised that she didn't put so much faith in it. Yeah, I feel like these food guides seem to be a relic of a previous era. And especially when we have access to Instagram, TikTok, even Yelp reviews. I had the same question. And that's why I was so surprised by Jillian's answer. So the next person I spoke to actually studies the social media of food and how it defines taste and how it relates in a large part to that idea of authenticity we've been talking about in this episode. I am Zena Feldman. I'm Associate Professor of Digital Culture at King's College London. And my research looks very broadly at how people use digital communications tech in their everyday lives um, and how they use tech to make sense of themselves and the world around them. So one of the areas that I've looked at a lot in my work outside of food is trying to understand this claim that social media are somehow really democratic, that they somehow give everyone who wants a voice, a voice, that they give anyone who wants a platform, a platform. And I was really interested to see what this meant for food culture. 
So the claim that somehow just because anyone can have a Twitter account means everyone can be a journalist, I think it's a really overhyped claim. And I wanted to see how that hype played out in the world of food criticism. So Zena was interested in trying to understand whether different areas of the food criticism landscape viewed food and judged food differently. Do TikTok and Instagram food critics value food in a different way than, say, the legacy media like the Michelin Guide or newspaper reviews? So I wanted to understand the relationship between these two corners of food critique, whether as we might assume, you know, Michelin is going to be super Eurocentric, it's going to be really expensive food that's recognized and valued versus the Instagram side of things where the assumption might be, well, you know, because anyone can have a voice, it means that underrepresented cuisines from different parts of the world from less expensive price points might be getting more of the attention there. Mm. And so this project was really testing that assumption. To carry out her research, Zena first looked at the Michelin Guide for London. Then she made a list of the city's most popular amateur food Instagram accounts in the hopes that these would be surrogates for your average diner. But she ran into an unexpected problem right off the bat. I made a list of criteria for what would disqualify someone from being on my list. Because again, I wanted to really test what was happening in what I thought was an amateur space of food media production. I disqualified anyone who was clearly a food industry professional. So there were plenty of people who had food Instagram accounts um, who were clearly being paid by industry to do PR for them. I would disqualify a chef. So I was really trying to make a data set of accounts that represented kind of ordinary, non-professional people who happen to like food. And in the end, it, it proved to be something of a red herring, you know, something of a wild goose chase. Because one of the things that really emerged from the research is that this figure of the amateur person who, you know, has a life outside of food, who just simply goes on Instagram to share delicious food they've eaten for its own sake, that was a total mirage. It was an illusion. Those hmm. people, I mean, certainly they exist, but these are not the people getting all the eyeballs, getting all the views on Instagram. So it turns out that almost all Instagram accounts with a sizable following are, in fact, professional food influencers. Doesn't sound like a bad job to me, but throws a bit of a wrench into Zena's research. Even if these food influencers had no apparent links to the food world, it was hard to know if the content had been paid for. Though the UK does have a law requiring influencers to disclose when content is sponsored, that law is rarely enforced. Basically, that amateur professional dichotomy that I was trying to prove existed absolutely failed to deliver in the way that I thought it might have done. So these non-traditional food critics were not really the true amateur foodies Zena had expected them to be, but she continued her research anyway with a slight tweak to her question. She was now going to explore if there was any difference between Instagram tastemakers and traditional food media in terms of what each considered to be good food and how they judged that food. When you started to look at these food influencers, these food accounts, what did you find? How were they presenting food? What kinds of food were they highlighting? How were they talking about it? Tell me about the culture of food on Instagram and kind of how Instagram defines quote unquote good food. Yeah. So the main theme of my findings is that 
social media and Instagram food content in particular dislodges a lot of the hierarchies we associate mm. with Michelin at the same time as reenacting some of them. Hmm. So for example, you know, the Michelin guide, it's associated with a certain kind of Eurocentrism, a certain sure. kind of classing and racializing of food, where there are lots of parts of the world and types of cuisines and type of cooking that's just not featured, it, that doesn't register in the three-star hierarchy. And, you know, if it does feature, maybe it'll feature in the Bib Gourmand category, you know, as an affordable bite. On Instagram, we still see some of that being reproduced. But what's different on Instagram, I think, is we see so much cultural omnivorousness. So we might have someone posting photos from three-star French fine dining experience that they had one mm -hmm. day. And then the next day, they'll be posting about a bowl of jollof rice that they got at a market stall. There isn't that kind of fixed Eurocentrism that we see in the Michelin Guide on Instagram. Again, even though the hierarchy of the Michelin Guide, the recognition of the Michelin Guide, it does map onto Instagram. It's not like uh, European fine dining restaurants are somehow missing from the data set. Sure. They're absolutely there, but they're also modified by what we might think of as cuisines traditionally excluded from elite institutions like Michelin. So did Instagram do a better job at representing foods from different cultures and ethnicities compared to the Michelin Guide? What I found is that Instagram food criticism, it has a particular way of understanding food and understanding good food. Um, so I talk about something that I call the Instagram gaze. And this is an idea of the kind of aesthetic and the kind of knowledge claim that Instagram makes on what constitutes good food. And what I found is that uh, culturally and economically, Instagram food criticism is a lot more inclusive than Michelin. So you mm. have many more cuisines and especially cuisines outside of the global north, outside of Europe being represented. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. food that is a lot more accessible to more people. You know, you have food that isn't a tasting menu. You have food that you can buy at a market stall for a few quid, making itself felt in a way that just is inconceivable in a Michelin guide. But the Instagram gaze is also that some... seems kind of good, though. If I could just jump in here, yeah, though, yeah. like, that's pretty good yeah. as far as a starting point, right? Like, cheaper, more representation. Like, okay, not bad. Absolutely. That, I think, is, is a great thing. Um, but it gets a bit more complicated because it's not as if expensive restaurants and European restaurants are missing on Instagram. They're absolutely there. They just don't have total domination of the narrative. Um Again, I started out thinking about Instagram food culture as being something created by amateurs, by just people as obsessed with food as I might be. And what I found is actually these are professionals. Um, these are either people making money from promoting content or people aspiring to make money from promoting content. And so what that's meant is that there's a certain standardization to how food is being represented on Instagram. Um, so these food critics that I looked at, they deployed a remarkably similar set of aesthetic techniques. You know, you had kind of the table landscape shots, the overlay shot, and you also had shots that had no people. So for all the things that we might say, all the negative things we might say about Michelin or about national restaurant critics, in those spaces, there's always some 
space for talking about the social experience of eating, you know, especially I think in newspaper columns. Uh, and even a Michelin, right? There's something about kind of the ambiance. There's something about the social experience of being in a space. Mm. With Instagram, the photos, the the images of good food, or the the kind of visual claim to what constitutes good food, is completely desocialized. Huh, so in none of the photos do we ever see photos of people. Uh, we don't see people eating. We don't see people cooking. We don't see people clearing dishes away or delivering them to a table. And so, you know, arguably for me, one of the things that makes food really fun is sharing it with people I like. And here there was none of that. There was a totally desocialized kind of aesthetic landscape. So what has this kind of rise of Instagram as a leading food and the rise of social media as a food influence, food taste maker, what has that meant for consumers? Is it driving our tastes in some direction? Is it diverging then from kind of the Michelin Guide stuff? You know, the answer in classic academic style is it depends. <laughs> sure, um, sure. You know, I think that um, do we have more food media today than we did, say, 40 years ago? Absolutely. Uh, does that mean there's perhaps a heightened awareness about food, about ethical sourcing, um, seasonal food, and so on? Yes, absolutely, there might be. And, and I think there is more awareness, but not for everyone, right? Not for everyone, not everywhere. And I think that in some cases, you know, where we have this just total deluge of digital food content, we're actually also seeing people respond to that by going back to legacy media. So being so overwhelmed Mm. by really just this onslaught of data that they'll go back to the Michelin Guide. They'll go back to their national food critic who writes the Sunday food column in the paper. So it works both ways. You know, I think some Mm. people love the abundance of content, others don't, and others just don't care or don't think it's for them. And what advice would you give to someone as they navigate the whole food tastemaker landscape? You need to start with food that you actually enjoy eating. Mm. You know, just because something looks really hot on Instagram doesn't mean it's for you. It doesn't mean you should like it. <laughs> doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean that because you're not interested, you somehow don't know what good food is. So throw mm. all that stuff out the window. I mean, personally, this is how I understand good food and how I kind of enact it in my life. I am really, really interested in the conditions of production. And so what that means is I won't go to a place that's known to mistreat its staff. So I'd say that and I'd say, you know, there's no one right answer about how to do good food. You know, you do what you can with the means available to you. That is it for this episode. Thank you to all of the academics we spoke to this week, Jillian Gualtieri, Krishnendu Ray, and Zena Feldman, and also a shout out to Sally Everett, who provided some excellent background information. Also, one quick announcement from me. I'm going to be moving on from the conversation weekly, and while I will miss you all, I am excited to hear what the show continues to do. So, Nahal, I'm going to miss you and everyone else as well. We're going to miss you too, Dan. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. 
This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced by me, Daniel Marino, and written by Katie Flood. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandy does the transcripts. Mend Marwani is the show's executive producer. I am Dan Marino. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thanks for listening. Thank you.